Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 46 of the podcast, the topic is parliamentary tech and hypertransparency. Our guest is Fotis Fitzilis, head of the scientific service in the Hellenic Parliament. In this conversation, we talk about how parliamentary transparency steeped in legal informatics, innovation in GovTech, open data and ongoing digitization is slowly inching forward because of innovative initiatives such as the Hellenic OCR team. OCR stands for Optical Character Recognition. Emerging use cases include access, archiving, analysis, transparency, and traceability of the enormous amount of information passing through any national parliament. The market for such applications is much vaster than the 190 or so national parliaments. Virtually any legislative body at any level might be a target, and there might be tens of thousands such government structures, not counting non-governmental bodies that also have a highly structured governance. A word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Fotis, how are you today? Thank you, Trond. Uh, weather has been uh, great the last days in Athens. So, uh, um, well, I hope it keeps on going like that for the whole uh, winter. Well, you are lucky in Greece. I know that. You are blessed with the usually very nice weather almost all year round. So I wish that for you uh, as well. Um, look, Fotis, your experience in uh, a very specific field of e-government has uh, you know, really come to, to, to my attention. And I wanted to chat a little bit about your background first. So You've worked for over 20 years in, in various sort of science positions, both in public, private uh, sector and universities. And you currently head up a scientific service of the Hellenic Parliament, which is uh, interesting. But that's not really why it's interesting. It's because the digital initiative that you have taken there has, has really sparked the interest, uh, you know, in, in countries around the world. Tell us, you know, from a doctoral degree in electrical engineering uh, back in Aachen, which I, I love, it's a nice uh, town in, in Germany, and, and then all the way to, uh, to the parliament and, and setting the stage for a, a more advanced uh, e-government in parliaments. What was it that brought you on this path of, uh, of parliamentary uh, e-government? Well, um, I've been working on uh, with parliaments for several years, uh, more than a decade. And um, um, approximately three to four years ago, I have been working on a project on parliamentary uh, data, um, more specifically textual data, text documents. And um, uh, we reached a point uh, in this project, we wanted to assess the... Uh, the parliamentary text. So we wanted to learn more about the uh, the uh, uh, quality of the text, the quality of the language, to uh, uh, examine scientifically 
with linguistics and computational linguistics, the language, and wanted to build on that uh, to, uh, to do data-driven uh, policymaking or to assist uh, MPs and policymakers, uh, if you wish, uh, into the, their policymaking. Now, we had a problem there because we quickly figured out that uh, there was vast amount of data at our disposal, but at the same time, they were in wrong formats uh, or, or non-processable at all. Uh, for instance, they were in uh, as image PDFs. So you couldn't really do something with that. Uh, so this was the, the triggering moment, the spark, uh, sparking moment um, uh, of the Hellenic OCR team. Uh, we decided to uh, make, to build an initiative, to work with people from the private sector, from academia, and the governor, government and parliament itself, of course, uh, so that we can tackle these, uh, the, the challenges that are linked to the processing and analysis of such data. In order to, to set the stage for what this really is, because it, it, it may be very s simplistically understood as, you know, oh, uh, you know, all you're doing is, uh, you know, you're doing some, uh, some information project with the parliament. It, 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 it's really just setting the stage for what e-government is, but what the specific type of e-government demands. So you, you mentioned that some of these texts are in formats that you cannot really read or, or make intelligible. If you were to look at some of the terminology that comes into this field, linked open data is one term. Semantic web and, or web 3.0, they seem to be slightly synonymous, is another. Can you give us a sense of what the sort of technical terms are in this field that, that really we need as a baseline to kind of really talk about the topic? Well, uh, Trond, let's begin with uh, the general field our work is moving uh, in. It's, uh, it's legal informatics, actually. Right. Uh, it is called legal informatics. So it has certain dimension um, in, uh, embedded in law. And uh, another dimension is embedded in, in traditional informatics. So when, um, when combining these two scientific fields, um, uh, you get into uh, cert certain issues or problems. Um, the basic um, challenge uh, that uh, the legal informatics scholars encountered, and practitioners, of course, was the lack of standards. So uh, this includes also the, the common language that, that uh, humans speak, or the terminology um, among others. So um, uh, at first, uh, standards uh, and, and computer language, uh, to put it plain, needed to be developed. And uh, the V3C consortium did the, uh, their great work together with the OASIS standardization body uh, and create a set of standards that are today at our disposal uh, and with, uh, with which we can uh, work together. For instance, uh, we have the XML standard for a long time, it's around. Uh, right. Together with RDF, uh, they make a, a powerful double. And um, a higher ontology, a higher standard built on XML and uh, was the uh, Comantoso, 
Uh, this was a standard that was initiated um, only two years ago. It, it was August 2018, so it's, it's not so long ago. Um, and inter interestingly, it was the UN United Nations that uh, supported the creation of, the, of this standard so that parliaments, legislatures, or assemblies in general, also self-governance assemblies, could uh, draft legislation or legal texts uh, that can be interlinked and that are machine-readable and consumable. So this is well. This, 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 I, I think uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. This standard, the name Akomanontoso, means linked hearts in the exactly. Akan language of West Africa. It's it's just fascinating to me that such a technologically heavy standard uh, has such a sort of a fascinating linguistic name. Um, but but more more importantly, what is it that is so specific about parliamentary language, mm. and and what are the facets of that language that you have exploited as you are, uh, you know, trying to digitalize it? What what do these standards contain? What is it that linguistically sets a parliamentary text apart from other text? Um, let me begin um, with a um, basic term, which is legal tech. Well, legal tech might be the, the greater, um, the greater uh, field we are moving in. And then we have legal informatics embedded. Um, and usually most um, scholars, um, or traditionally most scholars, have been working in legal tech. And most of the research is, is invested uh, is conducted within the greater field of, uh, of legal tech that usually um, tackles governmental um, agencies, ministries, uh, other governance bodies, uh, uh, independent state bodies, and so on. Now, parliaments um, would seem like a niche uh, within this greater field. Right, because they're not all legal documents. Well, they all have to be interpreted in a legal context, but they are policy documents also, aren't they? Indeed. Um, nevertheless, um, even proceedings, parliamentary minutes, um, discussion minutes, can be structured in a machine-readable form using such standards. So... Um, Technically, it doesn't matter what kind of document it is. It, it, could, be, it could be an extra-parliamentary uh, document uh, that where you can, you can apply such technologies and structure it and make it machine-readable. Now, why uh, your original question was, what, what's about parliament? So what's in it? Um, why do we care about that? Isn't it just a piece of the bigger pie. Well, technically, um, actually it is, but uh, on the same, at the same side, um, at, the, at the same time, it isn't. Um, see, parliaments uh, can be seen as the core hubs of, of, info, of legal information. So it is exactly at this point within parliaments where several things come together. Policy making, legislative drafting, parliamentary control. So when you you have drafted legislation and and, and voted for it and uh, it's applied, uh, parliaments come to to um, assess the implementation of legislation so that the circle closes within parliaments. Uh, 
So these kind of documents that parliaments create uh, are interesting in a multitude uh, of ways. For instance, uh, you already mentioned linguistically, uh, right. of course this applies to every document, but um, specifically in parliaments, you can, when you are investigating in a scientific way uh, using linguistics and computational linguistics, parliamentary documents, you have the possibility, for instance, to see how uh, policies alter over time, how the language of, of uh, MPs and, uh, and of parliamentary officials changes over time. You can see how, poli how parties, how party politics change if they overlap, if they, uh, if they uh, go apart. Um, and this is only one part of the story. At the same time, when structuring these documents uh, in uh, using legal informatics patterns and ways, uh, you can, and making them readable in a linked open data, link, linked government open data format, you can achieve the following. You can see in real time how these documents evolve over time. You can see in real time who made which change in, in, in a certain document. And at the same time, people, this is, this is when you're in the parliament, and if you can make it open, so available to the, to the citizens, to the greater public, every interested person, every stakeholder, if you would like so, can see in a, in a certain document, legal document, how this document has changed, who made these changes, and, what, and how these changes are interested, interesting for, the certain, uh, for a certain policy or group of, uh, group of people. Uh, Fotis, this is fascinating. What, what I do see, though, is that in order for, even if this actually starts to become the case for documents uh, in, in various parliaments, right, it would take a very, not just advanced technology, but kind of smart and sort of time-saving type of approach to really present it in a way that is digestible to the ordinary citizen. But I can see that Going forward, if if this thing starts to work, uh, this would be fodder for an enormous amount of you know journalistic work, of uh, investigative work from uh, NGOs, and definitely also historical work. So, so the perspectives for political analysis, historical analysis, even just industrial sector analysis. If you're trying to understand how a sector is shifting and and is changing, there are many kind of intellectual perspectives you can obviously apply to this. But um, I guess this is why this, this talk is so interesting because, you know, in many circles, uh, we speak about digitization as if it's almost over, as if all of these things have been around for so long and all we're doing now is kind of uh, harvesting the benefits and, and sort of just kind of enjoying this digital world. But what you are talking about is actually a digital world that it just is coming into existence. This kind of specificity around documents, I mean, way over and beyond AI and kind of like grandiose statements, this is real work to, to, to make this transparent enough and useful enough. That's the daily work you're involved in. T tell me a little bit more about how 
your daily work at the Hellenic OCR team, what are the things that are challenging to you as we speak? And, and how, you know, what sort of strides have you made so far? And what, and, and what kind of resources does it take to, to tackle these, these enormous transparency potentials? I would say we have um, multiple production lines. It's not a single thing that we do over and over again. Uh, obviously, there is some sort of routine there. But um, since, as you, right, uh, as you rightfully mentioned, um, this is a complex process that involves processing of, of uh, data, transformation of data into a machine-readable format, which involves, obviously, uh, linked open data. And on top of that, conducting the, the analysis on different uh, dimensions, uh, historical dimension, linguistic dimension, policy dimension, obviously, or, or plain sector analysis. So what, what, how did the, the health sector evolve uh, over the last decade or, or the migration sector or whatever? Uh, so this is a complex process and this is why we involve um, at the time we uh, at this time 35 um, experts uh, via uh, a crowdsourcing effort now i want to if, with your permission i would like to elaborate a little bit on that sure um, the hellenic parliament as most of of the of the parliaments in the world uh, is a rather a small scale parliament um, we have um, uh, um, roughly uh, um, in the scientific service, roughly uh, 18 persons that work there. And most of them are legal experts. Sure. Now, uh, as, as mentioned uh, just moments ago, these, um, these issues we're tackling um, uh, are not specific to, to, to the legal uh, science. You need a multitude of different experts um, from, from sev with several backgrounds to coexist and work together uh, in order to see this project uh, in a holistic way. Uh, this is why we, we decided to go, let's say, to, to open ourselves up and use the, the, the power of, of the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd and involved not only public sector experts, but also we invited private sector uh, experts and practitioners from uh, other um, fields and from academia in order to offer some of their precious time and their wisdom and, and expertise to jointly tackle these, these issues. Um, and please pay attention that this crowdsourcing effort um, comes for the parliament at no cost. We don't pay anything to them. But you know, this is fascinating to me because one thing, one thing that just struck me for this is that the parliamentary use case in, in terms of not just of democracy, but I mean, that's what makes this possible, right? Because in any other, even public sector, and certainly if you look at texts in the private sector or even, I guess, within government as such, 
there would be all kinds of things you would have to sign and privacy agreements and this and that. But there's something, I mean, I, I am even amazed though that you kind of were allowed to set this up because, <laughs> right? So these are people who are not Greek. They don't have any allegation to to your parliamentary system, yet you are allowing them access to a bunch of these documents and potentially to discover things, maybe uncover things. Um, so there's an enormous potential sort of transparency risk involved. And I just wanted to point out that, well, we have what, some 190 plus countries in the world, not all of them have parliaments, but can you maybe make a comment on, so, you know, this open parliament approach or open data in government is a, is a big movement around the world. But yeah. how many other parliaments have in any meaningful way opened up their documents so that there are texts available, even if they may be, you know, PDFs or such, uh, so that you can start this kind of analysis that you have started doing in the Hellenic parliament? Uh, that's a very interesting question, um, but let me first uh, uh, grasp a, a, a piece of information you, you just gave away. How are we allowed to do that? Uh, that's a very yes. interesting point, and it's critical, um, because what we do here, it's, it's, uh, it's science. So we are not selling this data. We're right. using data that it's more or less online, but they are in a wrong form. So the... Um, if you want me to make it, uh, let's say, better understandable uh, for most people, uh, they are um, in a low level um, uh, of, of accessibility. Um, but at the same time, these are uh, documents that uh, that have that uh, are interesting for many people. Sure. And these uh, people, um, th this is the, the, the target group we want to, uh, to approach. Uh, to, we want to transform the data and make this data available in, in a machine-readable format uh, to practically to every interested uh, individual. Mm. Now, since we, uh, we are doing science, we... Uh, we end up offering this amount of data, this data set, this open data set, for free to anybody, including the parliament, obviously. Um, the interesting part, maybe for you and for lots of our, in, in our audience, begins if somebody wants to play more with this data or uh, using the methods technologies and software, because we develop also software, which we make available on our GitHub. Uh, if, if somebody wants to use that, what happens next? Uh, and we could debate about that because this, is really, this starts to get really interesting because, as you mentioned, we're talking about hundreds of organizations that are possibly uh, interested in, in, uh, in this uh, kind of... Uh, digital transformation. Sure. Uh, but we're not only talking about here parliamentary institutions. Uh, this could be interested for hundreds or, or even thousands of self-governance institutions that technically work um, similarly to, uh, to, to every uh, national assembly. So we, we are also um, 
speaking or, or offering such technologies and, uh, and know-how to, uh, to regional assemblies, to uh, local self-governance assemblies. And altogether, we are talking about thousands, uh, maybe tens of thousands, such entities worldwide. And there it starts getting really interesting because from the moment people and entrepreneurs around legal tech starting to realize this, it's not only about parliaments, it's practically about um, every form of governance, every level of government, governance that uses uh, structured debates to produce uh, decisions or legislation. I'm starting to see that. I mean, and, and yeah, exactly. And the pool of documents and the, the number of institutions now, you said 10,000, but I mean, it depends just how much you open it up because presumably yeah. any organizational structure with, with some kind of complexity, even a lot of nonprofit organizations. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, places like, you know, I don't know, Amnesty International, any, any organization that has any kind of track record of documents that go through board meetings and, and want a record of those documents yep. could potentially, you, you know, uh, presumably make, make use of some of these findings. I, I know you work a little bit with uh, uh, actors connected to the UK Parliament, right? So they have, they have in, uh, invested in, in this. Uh, open data is a big thing. Uh, Parliament of Canada, this seems to be a, another actor, is that right? And That's then the uh, European Parliament uh, does well, some work on this. Traditionally, the um, Anglo-Saxon uh, or the Commonwealth Parliaments um, are, have invested um, a lot in this. They were among the first that have uh, seen that come in. Uh, the first were probably um, the, uh, the, the US Congress and the House of uh, Representatives. Um, mm -hmm. This was roughly, not roughly, uh, almost exactly 20 years ago that have initiated uh, or have restructured the, the whole legislative process to uh, uh, being uh, um, by using XML. So by using a technology that allows the, um, the structuring uh, of the document in a, in a, in a full defined way. Mm -hmm. Now this is, this is one side of the coin. Uh, people will say, well, that, that's, that's, XML is uh, really more than 20 years around. Um, uh, this is a, as an, as an established standard. Why are we even talking about that? Now, with XML or with an XML-related technologies, the, the, it starts to get, to get interesting. Because only if you have your material in such a defined way, you can start applying on this um, emerging technologies like artificial intelligence algorithms, uh, augmented reality, uh, natural language processing, and, and other types of, um, of, of new or um, developing technologies. And you can build really interesting services around that. And uh, you, you know better than, than me, it's all about the killer application that you can make. So, sure. so this killer application wouldn't be even conceivable without the, the uh, first level transformation into linked open data. And only when you have that, you can, make, you can really be creative 
and, and tell to the legislators, to the MPs, or to, to, to every interested stakeholder out there. Now, having all this legal information, we can play around. We can make useful services to youth services that they, are, uh, they would be possibly interested also to pay for and create, generate from Let scratch a whole industry. Let, let's let's move to that for a second. So I, I know that one of the goals of your uh, currently scientific endeavor is to to potentially uh, spin out some startups or or work together with with uh, organizations or or even license some of your technologies to other uh, other firms. What are some of the more promising startups that are working in this very niche market of, of parliaments and, and, and assemblies. Because, you know, the e-government or, or GovTech space, which some call it nowadays, you know, is a broad church of a lot of different actors. Many of them are simply consulting firms that are doing data integration tasks. You know, they are the Accentures of the world, really, also, that, that are going in on government contracts. And, and they are doing some of this integration work for specifically for government services but what are some of the more specific startups that work on uh, legal tech and parla parliament tech maybe we can stop it here for a moment because the, the kid starts to get anxious uh, would you like to make a, a short break for a minute or so um, I'm happy but this it doesn't disturb uh, okay. the sound too much All right. yeah no no worries no okay. worries um, when talking about um, when when the discussion starts uh, going to the uh, to the entrepreneurial environment or the the, the greater uh, startup um, ecosystem, um, it starts get messy um, because we we are talking about several types of technologies. We talk about um, about several. Um, niche markets that the, uh, the startups or spin-offs um, are, are working on. Uh, and um, specifically when coming into the parliamentary section, uh, sector, we have um, um, uh, a very small number of these uh, spin-offs or, or startups that are really relevant. Um, now, I know you in the pre, in the prep in the prep you you mentioned I think two or three names. So yeah. Hypernetica is one, Bitnomos, yeah. and then Essential. But they weren't, I guess, really a startup. But can you give me a sense of what what these actors uh, are doing? So they're some of them are collaborating with you, and they are involved in this uh, application of legal tech standardization. Exactly. Now, within the um, general parliamentary uh, environment, um, besides tech, what matters is the fundamental understanding of how this uh, how parliaments work, operate. So, um, uh, what's critical there is to combine somehow knowledge both from the uh, from the traditional legal field. With knowledge from the from the um, from the ICT sector, and there there were only a few that really grasped this this um, this uh, idea and uh, uh, and proceeded with the production of key turn solutions. One of these you already mentioned, 
uh, is uh, called Bitnomos. Now, Bitnomos is a very interesting uh, case because it, or it originates in Bologna, Italy. It, uh, start, it started with uh, Professor Monica Palmirani, and Monica Palmirani uh, is uh, not simply somebody in the field. Uh, she has co-created the Accommandoso standard. And at the moment, uh, we cooperate closely with, with Monica. At, uh, at the moment, they decided to make to do a spin-off because uh, all, these, all this knowledge that, that was uh, vested and, uh, in, in, a in a number of, uh, of graduate and postgraduate students and PhD students of her, it needed to, to be invested somewhere useful, and they uh, they decided to go to go live with that, and I uh, I think they were quite successful. Uh, a more uh, recent um, uh, startup is the Hypernetica UK-based uh, solution with whom we too cooperate. They are part of uh, of our uh, uh, Hellenic OCR team network. Actually, there we have outsourced. Uh, our complete software development process to, to Hypernetica. Hmm. Uh, and what they do is uh, they have been around as a, as a private uh, persons, as a, a private uh, I, um, software developers for more than 20 years. And uh, uh, with us, or we, uh, we're quite proud that the Hellenic OCR team has introduced these guys to the, to the parliamentary tech uh, business and with them or they with us might be better said uh, they try to create meaningful solutions for uh, legislatures and, and assemblies and uh, last but not least uh, they are the guys that are around for almost 20 years uh, it's uh, they are the guys from uh, um, from Essential uh, this is a US based company um, one of these guys uh, is uh, Grant Vergotini, uh, South African, uh, and uh, he uh, also co-created with Monica Palmirani uh, the, uh, the Commandoso standard, but he was the first, in my humble knowledge, that go the extra, went the extra mile to create a proprietary software solution for assemblies, and uh, as far as I know, uh, they have uh, they have uh, to their customers uh, belong the U.S. Congress, the uh, Assembly of California, uh, the Scottish Parliament, the U.K. Parliament, and I think they work also with other parliaments um, at the same time. And mm. please uh, let me let me end my sentence by saying something which is quite fascinating. On the one side, you have this whole open linked open data movement and these open standards that anybody can use and these open software solutions that, for instance, the European Commission invests uh, in. And on the other side, you have uh, this proprietary approach, so companies that have developed, based on standards, obviously, own um, applications that uh, are offered, offered in a commercial way. Um, now, we're still in the pioneering phase. Uh, nobody will, can really tell how the situation would be 
um, in a few years from now. Uh, but it, um, so you have you have two competing solutions: uh, an open source solution that is offered and sub and heavily supported by the U uh, by the European Union environment. And on the other side, you have uh, proprietary solutions, commercial solutions um, that need to be purchased in order to to be um, to be applied. So right, and and that's yeah. how I guess the European interoperability framework and, and the ISA two program and uh, and other things come into play and and kind of uh, chart Euro Europe's course in this uh, in this domain. I, I wanted to move into uh, you mentioned briefly how. Some of these standards and parliamentary legal tech developments will also impact the rise of disruptive tech. To what extent do you think that? Um, uh, so, I mean, is that because without these kind of ground truth based uh, standards developments, uh, you know, uh, even disruptive technologies wouldn't have, they, they just don't have a base layer to work with. Is that, is that kind of the argument um, that, that, that you need to create a space platform upon which the, these other more, um, you know, novel technologies, just they need a, a, a base platform. Is that why? Uh, well, that's a very tough uh, discussion. Um, Obviously, the European Union uh, have made a choice. They they seem to believe that um, um, you need some sort of um, fertile environment uh, in the form of uh, of an interoperability uh, framework uh, in order to develop your entrepreneurial ecosystem. So uh, this seems to be the case in Europe. Uh, on the other side, in the biggest companies, tech companies in the world, they are in, in the U.S., where you don't have such a you know structured and and stiff and heavy uh, and really detailed approach per roadmaps and so on. Uh, I mean, I suppose I suppose uh, still there's plenty of room for for ingenuity there, right. and really entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, to uh, to thrive within the legal tech, even without the need of of this uh, uh, defined uh, ecosystem um, by the European Union, which, by the way, it's not it's not so stiff as as one would say. Uh, nevertheless, it's there, and it's sort of a uh, you know guiding uh, principle uh, if you want to to work together with with uh, with the European system and. Uh, and imagine, uh, uh, let me tell you the following, imagine uh, representing a parliament. I'm, I'm representing the Hellenic parliament. Uh, and your, uh, what would be your options? I suppose uh, in, 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 the, um, in re regarding the European system, um, there is a more or less um, a general guideline to follow the European principles, including the, their system and approaches. Um, however, in the greater world, uh, I would say that still there's no regulation at all uh, regarding such systems, uh, so that um, uh, technically 
parliaments and assemblies there could, uh, could um, uh, approach this legal interoperability uh, aspect and legal tech in a completely different way. But, but regardless which way one approached this, if, if you're looking into the next decade, which is sort of where, where we're looking with this podcast, some argue that hyper-transparency you know, has never been as close as we are today. Others would say it's the opposite because big tech is actually locking down our digital options. Where are you on, on that scale? I mean, given Europe and, and this kind of regulatory approach to openness, are you optimistic that through your work at the Hellenic Parliament and with uh, the support from the European uh, Interoperability Framework and, and, and these kinds of developments and the Euro overall European legal and, and policy approach to, to regulating technology differently, are you, are you optimistic that hyper-transparency, whatever that really means, right? But it means some sort of increased transparency based on a more direct access to parliamentary debates, uh, a more direct access to the deliberations that have gone into what then becomes policy documents, and, and all of the things that we've been talking about over the, the last uh, you know, 40 minutes. Are you optimistic that this process of gradual increased transparency will continue and will turn into some sort of hyper-transparency for Europe? Or is this much more tenuous and much more sort of science-based at this moment. Yeah. Well, John, um, I'm sort of biased there. So, uh, still, you know, uh, I work and getting paid by parliament to, um, to, uh, to, to research on things um, that are not uh, non-dystopian. So, um, by principle, I would say that I do not believe uh, in, in a dystopian future. I do believe that technology offers uh, for the next decade uh, will offer uh, a wide set of options to uh, make information, the vast amount of information that, is, uh, that will be uh, um, accessible on the web, to customize this information to, 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 to any given individual. So we will have at our disposal Agents, software agents, or artificial, based on artificial intelligence and other types of technologies, that uh, will be able to uh, grasp the information we need at any given point. Mm -hmm. In in this sense, I do believe that the uh, evolution of the web to Web 3.0, which, by the way, is a much greater. Uh, has much greater meaning than simply the semantic web. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, we need to be positive uh, when thinking about that. But at the same time, the policy side, this is the science side that I'm talking about. This is manageable in a technical and scientific way. The other side of the coin is policy, so the politicians. And the other side of the coin is regulation of these kind of technologies and algorithms. And, and exactly the, the exact amount of regulation, if I'm allowed to say that, um, the, the, the allowed mix of regulation 
uh, will be critical in order for these services to be relevant for the, the majority of people on our planet. Hmm. Then if you regulate too hard, you, it might turn, uh, turn it differently uh, compared to if you don't to leave it totally unregulated or self-regulated practically. So hmm. uh, a trade-off need to be reached. This trade-off won't be, won't be the, uh, the exclusive right of politicians. It need, the the trade-off need to be reached together with society. Ideally, via a crowdsourcing approach, via a, co a cooperative approach involving society and its stake, the, the necessary stakeholders of society with, uh, within the political dialogue so that, you can, that we can come up each country maybe on its own, but maybe it, uh, it can be done holistically. It's still a big discussion. How do you regulate and at which level? Mm -hmm. Europe has a certain approach. China and US and Japan have different approaches. So society with politicians need to, to reach there uh, a trade-off on, on how to regulate these kind of technologies that do involve and to come back to our initial topic, everything around government technologies. So if you uh, were to advise people who are now interested in this area of legal informatics and uh, basically technical sides of, of e-government, where do you go to stay up to date on this field? We have talked a little bit about the European interoperability framework and I had uh, some part in, you know, in a previous iteration of a platform called ePractice, which then was turned into and joined up with this European Join Up portal, yeah. um, uh, you know, of which uh, the European Interoperability Framework goes into. What are some of the uh, other sources of information to stay on top of, of this field? What are the conferences and the publications and the people that matter? You've mentioned a few. So Monica Palmirani and uh, Grant Vergottini, I don't know if they still publish in this uh, space, but w where else should people go? Um, this is the, uh, the 21st century, uh, and this is a society that uh, is evolving within a pandemic situation. So um, we shouldn't forget that. We didn't even mention it for a second. Um, I think I should... Uh, bringing into play because it it's sort of um, uh, a it has sort of a catalyzing effect on on digital governance, uh, not not uh, specifically on citizens which are used to more or less in in digital tech, but on politicians. Uh, make them realize that oh, uh, these things might come quicker as expected, so we have to do something about that. Uh, and I see this uh, all the time um, as we speak. Uh, and if, if uh, societies uh, are disrupted once by the pandemic, uh, immediately uh, the intellectual link comes uh, that oh, it could happen again and again and again. So we need to migrate online so that we can remain undisrupted through any types of events. So um, naturally, this kind of... Uh, of uh, thinking has disrupted also the scientific sector. And every major conference now is online. 
And sure. uh, uh, before that, huge conferences like ISGAV. ISGAV is a huge conference that is uh, co-organized um, by the United Nations University. Um, has happened just uh, just uh, two weeks ago uh, online, and uh, they think we think because it it was meant to be in Athens, and uh, organizers think that they can they can make it happen uh, maybe in 2021 uh, live in Athens. Let's hope uh, we can make it uh, uh, through the pandemic. Um, now people. Uh, you know, uh, if you would, if you needed to access such a conference and go there live, you you needed to travel there, and you needed to spend some some five hundred dollars uh, to register for that. Uh, online, this is much cheaper. It's uh, it's really easy to go. It's uh, and it's uh, um, accessible uh, through a couple of uh, clicks. So, uh, um, such conferences uh, around around uh, legal tech. Are very interesting. I, I would mention a couple of more, if if you don't mind. Yeah, uh, sure. Then it's uh, Remep, Remep, uh, uh, and and Digilabs. Uh, Digilabs. Uh, let's start with Digilabs. Uh, is um, uh, a conference that is going to take place uh, in a month from now in Lübeck, Germany, um, and it is going to be about uh, digital ready. Um, legislation and uh, and legal informatics per se. Um, REMEP is is a is a conference series uh, that is usually hosted uh, in uh, in Austria. Um, it means research meets practice REMEP, and uh, it's it's an annual conference uh, happening uh, in summer. Um, I would urge people that are really interested into this uh, this type of this field to access these conferences. Uh, most of them are free, so Remep and uh, and uh, Digilabs. Uh, I think they are completely free. And ASGAV, there was a, a, a rather s symbolic uh, fee of uh, two hundred dollars or something like that. So. Uh, um, uh, these kind of conferences are very important to get state-of-the-art information, and of course, uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't uh, um, leave our our institutional website out, out of that. Uh, the Hellenic OCR team has a website that you can access. We're also um, represented uh, on LinkedIn as a, as a company, so you can find us there. Uh, and obviously my personal website, but I would I wouldn't really uh, uh, um, uh, want to advertise that because uh, technically uh, all all our actions and and meaningful um, initiatives uh, are placed on on the Hellenic OCR team. And also well, I, I will link up all all of those things for sure. Uh, Fotis, this is uh, it's been fascinating. It's a field that I think it's unless you really are. Uh, you know, alerted to the, the the developments in this field, it's it's an easy field to miss if you're looking at digital change. But it seems to me, uh, and from this conversation, that it's a rich field. It's a very challenging field. But also, if some of these things are resolved, 
the potential for both transparency and value creation seem immense. So congratulations on the work you've done so far. And thank you so much for sharing your information and, and your findings with us. Thank you very much, Sean. It was a tremendous experience talking to you. And uh, let's hope that we uh, will have again the possibility, the opportunity to talk. Uh, obviously, you and your audience, uh, as many as, as can make it, uh, are uh, anytime welcome uh, to Greece and the Hellenic Parliament. Uh, to, uh, to get uh, a guided tour uh, and to show them live how such systems operate in practice. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. Have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. You have just listened to episode 46 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of corporate venturing. Our guest was Fotis Fitsilis, head of the scientific service in the Hellenic Parliament. In this conversation, we talked about how parliamentary transparency steeped in legal informatics, innovation in GovTech, open data and ongoing digitization is slowly inching forward because of innovative initiatives such as the Hellenic OCRT. OCR stands for Optical Character Recognition. Emerging use cases include access, archiving, analysis, transparency and traceability of the enormous amount of information passing through any national parliament. The market for such applications is much vaster than 190 or so national parliaments. Virtually any legislative body at any level might be a target and there might be tens of thousands such governance structures, not counting non-governmental bodies that also have a highly structured governance. My takeaway is that governance hyper-transparency is still a decade or so away, but the Hellenic Parliament is leading the way, together with the US, UK and Canadian parliaments, as well as a set of countries in Northern Europe. Parliamentary documents are highly specialized texts and making them meaningful for machine analysis is not easy. However, precisely because they are so information rich, the promise of linguistic, political, historical and industrial anal analysis is great. Hypertransparency is definitely within sight, if not yet within reach. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.